This message was given at Des Moines Campus Fellowship's summer leadership training back in 2019. The theme that summer was typology, studying the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. Pastor Darren Miedema dives into how the age-old story of David and Goliath points to our hope through the gospel. We hope you find this encouraging. How you guys doing tonight? I'm fired up. I, uh, yeah, like Jake mentioned, um, I am a pastor at our Altoona location, so a lot of you guys I have never met before. This is a little bit weird for me to speak to an audience where I don't know most of you, but I feel like we're kindred spirits. I was a campus fellowship student once upon a time myself at Drake University, and uh, all the way back in 2006, that's when I graduated, so I'm pretty ancient. When they told me that I was going to speak at 8.30, I said, do you mean in the morning? Um, because I'm normally in bed by about 9 o'clock, 9.15 at the latest. Yeah, so I'm getting a little bit old, but it, it does my heart a lot of good to see you guys here tonight and to know that you're still um, laboring for the Lord on the universities and campuses here in Des Moines. And so I'm excited, and I'm excited to be able to teach the Bible. And so tonight we are going to look at one of the most well-known Perhaps one of the most cliched, uh, most caricatured passages in the entire Bible. We're going to look at David and Goliath. And I have to be honest, when I was given the assignment of teaching on David and Goliath, I was not all that enthusiastic about it at first. Uh, I, I think I got this topic from Jake Van Sickle. And... I had to do a little bit of soul searching in terms of why I was not that enthusiastic about it. He said, Darren, we want you to teach on the typology of David and Goliath. So to focus on how David and Goliath, that story is sort of a precursor. It's a, a type of Christ. It alludes and foreshadows prophetically to the gospel. And I said, hmm, <laughs> you know, I don't know how excited I am. And so I've had to do a little bit of soul searching in the last few weeks and try to figure out why is it that I am not that enthusiastic about this topic, or at least I wasn't when I started. I should mention I'm very enthusiastic about it now, but when I started, I tried to figure out why am I not that enthusiastic. The first reason that I could come up with is that I have a seven-year-old boy named Jackson, and so for the last five years or so, I have been repeatedly over and over and over asked and begged and sometimes forced to read the story of David and Goliath in just about every children's Bible you can imagine. And so I've got a little montage here of some of the children's Bibles we have. Here's the first one. This is the Jesus Storybook Bible. You, you know, you have to turn the book over on its side because Goliath is so big to read the story. Here's the version Bible app for kids. Uh, my son Jackson has spent many hours playing with this while we're in line at various places or having to wait for something. This is the big picture interactive Bible on the right-hand side there. That's a great kid's Bible. And then more recently, that picture on the left, that's from the Action Bible. I don't know if you guys have heard of this. I'm assuming most of you don't have kids, but the Action Bible is awesome. It's like a giant comic book that tells the story of the entire Bible. And so that's been the story of David and Goliath we've read most recently. But my son Jackson loves the story of David and Goliath. Probably the peak of his enthusiasm about this passage in the Bible came right around his fourth birthday. So when Jackson was getting ready to turn four, my wife and I went to him and we said, Jackson, what do you want for your fourth birthday? And he said, Daddy, I want a David and Goliath party. <laughs> 
And I said, are you sure you don't want like, you know, some Legos or something? No, he wanted a David and Goliath party. And so my wife and I looked at each other and we said, what does that even mean? Like, uh, how do you do a David and Goliath party? And so I'm going to tell you with the solution that we came up with. So we had all of Jackson's little friends come over and we had a bunch of people from our community group and an extended family, and his birthday is in the summer. And so we had the slip and slide out, and we had the pool, and, you know, we sang happy birthday, and we cut the cake. And then I snuck into the house, and I put on this outfit right here. Got a picture for you. (laughs) And I walked out into the backyard and announced that Goliath had arrived at the party, and I challenged my four-year-old son to a fight. (laughs) And then what happened is that he took that little Nerf bow and arrow, and with the assistance of my wife, he shot me. And he hit, it was so awesome, it hit the shield, it was super loud, I fell over, everybody cheered, and I was dead. And this is (laughs) what we ended up with. And Jackson, very familiar with the story, he ran up to me, he took my plastic sword, and he cut my head off, again, to the cheers of all of our friends and family, you know, (laughs) celebrating my defeat. And then there was a little twist at the end of the story. This doesn't happen in the Bible, but in this case, David actually became Goliath and stole Goliath's wife. Right there. (laughs) So that was a twist that I wasn't expecting. But my son, he loves, loves, loves this story. And so I have been... I have been hyper-exposed to it. And so that might be part of why I wasn't all that excited to teach on it, because to me, even though I I have very fond memories of David and Goliath, it feels kind of childish. It certainly feels, at a minimum, repetitive. But maybe it feels a little bit elementary. Maybe that was why. But then I I thought there's, I think, another reason. The other reason why initially I was not all that enthusiastic is because in terms of the typology of this passage, when you look at it, it's just a little bit too obvious, at least... It, it seemed that way to me. So when I, when I heard that we were going to be doing typological teachings, I thought, man, I had this vision in my mind that I'm going to sort of slowly un- unfold and, and unveil this amazing typology over the course of a sermon, and there'd be this moment at the end that's kind of like, aha, and everybody gets it, and it'd be amazing. But I just don't think that's actually going to work. I think it's too straightforward, that or I'm just not creative enough to do that. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cheat. What I'm going to do is right now, right at the beginning, I'm going to explain the typology of David and Goliath to you. So we're not going to get into the full typology of David um, because there would be many, many other parallels between David and Jesus that extend beyond this passage that we don't have time to cover. But here's the basic typology of the story of David and Goliath. First thing you need to understand is that David, in 1 Samuel 17, which is where this story unfolds, David is Israel's anointed king chosen by God. So in the book of 1 Samuel, Israel transitions from being a nation that never had a king, God was their king, to having their first king, and his name was Saul. And Saul was a man who did not honor God, he did not trust God, and he did not obey God. And so God said, Saul is out. God rejected Saul as king, and he said to the prophet, Samuel, Samuel, I'm going to choose a new king. I want you to go to Bethlehem, to the family of Jesse, and we're going to pick a new king, and I want you to anoint him. And so that has happened right before the events that we're going to read about tonight. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, God picks David, God chooses him, and then through his prophet, Samuel anoints him as king. So he is Israel's anointed king chosen by God. And this is who the Lord Jesus is. 
The Lord Jesus is the anointed Messiah. He, he is God's Savior to the world. One of Jesus' titles was the Son of David. He's a descendant of David. He's referred to as the King of the Jews. He's referred to as the King of Kings. It was understood that the Messiah would reign as King over Israel. And so David is Israel's anointed King chosen by God, and Jesus is God's chosen anointed Messiah. Okay, so what is David doing in this passage that we're about to jump into? David is the anointed king chosen by God, and what he's doing is he is fighting to defeat Israel's most feared and powerful enemy, who they had no chance of defeating on their own. And as it turns out, this is exact, exactly who Jesus is. Jesus is the anointed Messiah, and this is the, he came for the same reason. Look at John chapter 1, verse 29. This is talking about the first time John the Baptist sees Jesus. It says, when John saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so David, he is there to defeat the great enemy of Israel, which is the Philistines, and they uh, are exemplified and personified in this character, Goliath. And Jesus comes to defeat a greater enemy, the greatest enemy, not just of Israel, but of all of humanity, which is sin and death. This is the reason Jesus came. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what you see when you read the Gospels is that Jesus came to conquer sin and death. And the way that he did it is he lived a perfect, sinless life, and then he willingly went to the cross, and he suffered, and he bled, and he died in your place. He died the death that you deserve to die. And he took the punishment that you deserve for sin so that if anybody will look to Jesus and look to what he did on the cross and trust in his saving work that their sins will be cleansed. They will be dealt with. They will be taken care of on the body of Jesus that was crushed on the cross. And then Jesus defeated death. Three days after he died on the cross. He rose from death. So he conquers sin and death. So that's it. That is the typology. We have David and Jesus, both as Israel's anointed king, and we have David and Jesus coming to fight against the people of God's greatest enemy. That's the typology. It's not really all that complicated. So what are we going to talk about for the next 30 minutes or so? Well, what we're going to see is that the story of David and Goliath, like many other stories in the Old Testament, it is a gospel story. It's a historical event that actually happened with real people, but it points to something. And what it points to is humanity's need for salvation, for humanity's need for rescue and deliverance by God. And it also points to God's faithfulness and mercy to intervene on our behalf. And this is, we see stories like this all throughout the Old Testament, woven all throughout history. And what I have found in the last few weeks studying this passage is that I think just like the story of David and Goliath can get a little bit repetitive and a little bit stale, especially if you have a seven-year-old boy, I think for many Christians, the gospel, the saving act of Jesus to go to the cross on your behalf, that can get repetitive and stale. That's what I found in talking with many Christians. They're, they're like, okay, when are we going to move beyond these simple truths? Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sins. I got that. 
Give me the meaty stuff. Give me the deep stuff. Well, here's a key idea that you've got to understand. And I want you to keep this in the back of your mind as we study through 1 Samuel 17. And the idea is this. If the simple truth of the gospel feels repetitive and stale to your soul, that will be utterly devastating to your life. If you look at the gospel, and even the way I just explained it, just briefly, that God became a human being And he lived a perfect, sinless life. And then he was betrayed and suffered and died. And he did it for you because he loves you. And he did it for you because you have a problem of sin and you need to be rescued from eternal death and condemnation. If that truth is just kind of like, meh, you know, it's just kind of, you know, I've heard that a lot. I get it. I'm a Christian. If that's the way it feels in your soul, that will be toxic. That will cause so much frustration and so many problems in your life and in your relationships over time. This is why the Apostle Paul gives this instruction in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2 verse 6 says, so then just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. Do you see what Paul's saying here? What he's saying is if you want to practically live lives that are rooted in Jesus Christ, where you are built up and you are maturing and you're established and you're strong in your faith and your life is overflowing with joy and gratitude, then there's something that you need. And if that's where you want to be, what you need is you need to continue to live each day with all of the enthusiasm and all of the humility and all of the excitement about the gospel as the first time you ever understood and believed it. That's what Paul's saying. And this is where the story of David and Goliath has been really helpful to my soul and where I've gotten actually really, really excited. As I dove in and started studying the text, It has helped me see truths about the gospel that are fresh and and, and new and not things that I didn't know before, but, but when you look at it from a different angle, when you look at God's work and God's compassion and God's deliverance in the Old Testament, it just makes the gospel that much more rich and exciting. It's a gospel story. And so what we are going to look at tonight, we're going to look at three things. If you're taking notes, here's our outline. We're going to look at three gospel truths from the story Of David and Goliath. So here's the outline. The gospel is unexpected. That's the first thing. Second thing is that the gospel is outrageous. And the third thing is that the gospel is our only hope. All right. So let's dive in. David and Goliath, this story, I've read this story so many times. The first thing that we're going to see is that the gospel is unexpected. So 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 1, it says, the Philistines gathered their forces for war at Socah in Judah and camped between Socah and Azekah in Ephes Demim. Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped in the valley of Elah. Then they lined up in battle formation to face the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on one hill, and the Israelites were standing on another hill with a ravine between them. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall and wore a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was a bronze, bronze armor on his shins, and a bronze javelin was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam, and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. 
He stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formations, why do you come out to line up in battle formation, he asked them. Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. This is the scene, famous scene. It's like something out of a movie. You've got the Israelites on a cliff, on a hillside over here, and they're lined up in battle formation. Think like Braveheart. It's this incredible scene. On the other side of uh, the, the hill formation, you have the Philistine. There's a ravine in between them. So they're looking across at each other. And the Philistines are Israel's greatest enemy at this point in history. And the Philistines by themselves, forget about Goliath, the Philistines are a terrifying enemy. They have done a lot of harm to Israel already. So uh, they've already fought each other, and, and the Philistines have won many battles over the Israelites. They've occupied some of their cities. At one point earlier in 1 Samuel, they actually capture the Ark of the Covenant, and they, they take it back to their land. And so they have done great harm to Israel already. And what's at stake here? It's not just losing a battle. That's not what's at stake. It's not like, man, if we go and fight them, some of us are going to die, and we might lose. What's at stake in this situation is that they get completely conquered. That's what they're up against. The Philistines are trying to utterly conquer the Israelites. They're saying, uh, if you guys lose, you're going to be our servants. So we will take all your wealth, and we will occupy all your cities, and we will make you our slaves. And more than likely what that means is we'll make your young men and women and children our slaves, and all of the fighting age men will be slaughtered. This is what they're facing. So that's the threat. And the threat becomes a lot more frightening when this new guy shows up, this champion, this warrior named Goliath. And you get the sense that the Israelites were not aware of this man before. And we don't know exactly why that is, is but, but Goliath steps out to represent the Philistines. And I wish we had a lot more time to get into Goliath and all of his armor and how crazy all of it is. But there's just one thing that I want to just take one minute to try to help us understand, which is just his sheer size. Uh, I want to give you some perspective on how big of a man Goliath was. So I've got a picture here. How many of you have ever heard of the basketball player Manute Bull? Yes, that's awesome. I thought for sure. He was a basketball player that played in the early to mid-90s. And uh, so most of you guys were not born yet. <laughs> Maybe that's when you were born, right around that time. But Manute Bull, he played in the mid-90s. He played for the Golden State Warriors. He played for the Washington Bullets, a couple other teams. And he wasn't that great of a player, but he's known for one thing. He is the tallest player to ever play in the NBA. He stood at 7 feet 7 inches tall. I mean, he was an absolute giant. Now, there's a couple guys who have uh, been the same height, who have tied him since he was in the NBA, but at the time, he was the tallest player by far to ever play, seven foot seven inches. And right here, he's standing next to Charles Barkley. Do you guys know Charles Barkley? Okay, yes, Charles Barkley, Sir Charles. Charles Barkley is six foot six. I mean, he is a huge, huge man, and he looks like an absolute midget. He doesn't even come up to Manute Bull's shoulder. Now, here's what I want you to realize, though. If you were to have to put money on one of these two guys in this picture for who would win in a fight, 
How many of you are going to put your money on a minute bowl? Yeah, zero, zero hands. I, I, I wouldn't, yeah, I think we got one taker. Nobody's betting on Manute Bowl if these two guys mix it up. Because you look at Charles Barkley, and Charles Barkley is just, I mean, he looks like a freak. He's just solid muscle, and he's huge. And if, if you're a little bit on the fence about who would win in a fight, just look at the look on Barkley's face. I mean, he is obviously not intimidated by Manute Bull. And the reason is because even though Manute Bull is this huge seven foot seven inch guy, in my experience and probably in your experience, when people are that tall, most human beings who are that tall, like over seven feet, they're kind of awkward and they're gangly and, they're, and, and, and it's like they, they're, they're really freakishly tall, but they're not that well put together. They don't look that athletic. That is not how Goliath was. So you think, well, maybe Goliath, he was, you know, he was almost 10 feet tall, but he was just this really wonky, sort of awkward 10 feet tall. No. <laughs> when I think of Goliath, I think of Shaquille O'Neal. Shaquille O'Neal, he's seven foot two, but he's like 400 pounds. Goliath, he's nine foot. So think about this. Manubul, seven foot seven inches. Goliath is over two feet taller than him. And he's gigantic. It says his armor weighs 125 pounds. He is an absolute monster unlike anything we can even really imagine. And there's a principle that tends to be true in life that I think you guys will agree with. And the principle is that big problems require big solutions. All of our experience tells us this. All of history tells us this. Common sense tells us this. Big problems require big solutions. And the more, uh, the, the bigger, the more complicated, the more powerful a problem is, the bigger and more complicated and powerful the solution needs to be. Example, think about Hurricane Katrina, 2005. Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf Coast, and the most impacted city was New Orleans, Louisiana. So there was levees that broke, and the city was flooded, dozens and dozens and dozens of square miles downtown New Orleans. I have a picture of this. It was unbelievable, the scale of this problem. It was totally devastating. You had, just within a couple of days after the hurricane, 60,000 people stranded in the city. And I don't mean stranded like their car was broken down. I mean stranded like sitting on the tops of buildings or floating on debris, stranded. Within a couple weeks of the hurricane hitting, there were 700,000 people who had to evacuate because their homes were underwater. This was a massive, massive problem. Now, how was the problem solved? Well, we don't have time to explain all of it, but just a couple bullet points. The first way that they started to try to solve the problem is that the United States military got involved. They started JTF, which stands for Joint Task Force Katrina. They based it out of Camp Shelby in Mississippi. And then what they did is they uh, had 60,000 National Guard troops descend on Camp Shelby. 60,000 troops activated, came from all 50 states. The, part, the Department of Defense also activated members of the Civil Air Patrol, and then Congress authorized national financial aid totaling $62.3 billion for the victims. And that doesn't even scratch the surface. I mean, that's just, just some really high level. How did they solve this problem? So big, big problems require big solutions, and Israel has a massive problem on their hands. They are facing enslavement and or extermination by the Philistines. And the Philistines have this gigantic army, imposing army, but then they've also brought a 10-foot-tall giant who's looking for a fight. So what is the solution going to be to this problem? Well, at this point, 
I think what you need to understand the passage is you need some greater context in terms of the book of 1 Samuel. And you need to understand that for centuries leading up to these events, and really even just this time in Israel's history, there was no king. Israel never had a king. God himself was their king, and God led them, and God guided them, and God would use prophets called judges to help govern the people. And at this time in history, they are being led, they're being judged by a prophet named Samuel. God is their leader. Samuel is his representative over the people. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people of Israel, they come to God and they demand a king. They demand a king. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. It says, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us the same as the other nations have. When they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong. So he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel says, guys, don't do this. He warns them. He says, don't reject God. Don't demand a king. The people respond in verse 19. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. So what is the solution to this massive problem of the Philistines? It is the king. It's Saul. It is King Saul. The primary motivation for the Israelites sinning against God and rejecting him as their king and saying, no, we need a king like the other nations, was national security. That was the issue. It was they wanted somebody to go out before them and fight their battles. It was to solve the problem of the threat of their enemies. And so Saul is the big solution to the big problem. And Saul literally is big. The Bible tells us that he was head and shoulders above any man in Israel. So he's huge, he's impressive, he's imposing. He looks and sounds and feels like a king. When I think of Saul, I think of like Aragorn from the Lord of the Rings. Like at the end of the last movie when he gets the beard and they put the crown on him and he's got the armor. He's just like the manliest thing you've ever seen. That's who Saul is. But how is Saul doing in defeating Israel's enemies? <clears throat> It says in verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. So Saul is the solution the people come up with, and he has utterly failed. That's what's going on. Saul's the big solution to the big problem, and he has utterly failed. Compared to Goliath, he is a tiny midget. You know, he, he's a joke. He has no chance. And so what happens next is that God is going to step in to rescue the people and God's solution does not appear to be big and impressive and powerful. What is God's solution? Verse 12. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite from Bethlehem named Jesse. Jesse had eight sons, and during Saul's reign was already an old man. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war, and their names were Eliab, the firstborn, Abinadab, the next, and Shammah, the third. And David was the youngest. 
The three oldest had followed Saul, but David kept going back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock in Bethlehem. So this is where we get first introduced to David in the story. We don't really know what David has to do with anything yet, but we get a few characteristics about him. So who is David? Well, first thing we know is he's from Bethlehem which means he's from nowhere. I mean, he's from a tiny, tiny, insignificant town. We don't tend to think of Bethlehem that way because we know as Christians, oh, that's where Jesus was born. You know, that's the city of David. And so it has some significance in our minds, but this is a thousand years before Jesus. And even during Jesus' time, Bethlehem is like, it's a one-stop sign town. It's a tiny little town where a few shepherds live. And that's where David is from. Most scholars believe that David was probably between 13 and 15 years old. I won't explain how they reached that conclusion, but that's the range. He, so he's a teenager, but he's like a young teenager. And the last characteristic we get is that he's a shepherd. He's a shepherd, which is like the exact opposite of any sort of position of honor or power or authority. This is about the lowliest position you could hold in Jewish society. And he probably drew the short straw because he's the youngest. So he's the one who has to deal with the sheep. What does David look like at this point? It doesn't tell us in this passage, but we get in 1 Samuel chapter 16 a little bit of a description of what he looks like, and it essentially describes him as a young, small guy. <laughs> you know, he, he's a kid. It describes him as ruddy, which is a word that, that essentially means he kind of has red cheeks, like he doesn't have any facial hair. That's the idea. Like he's this little boy. He is not a person who, if you ran into him on the street on a dark corner at night, you would have any sort of hesitation about. You know, you're not going to feel intimidated by David. If you had to fight David, you're probably not too worried about it. He's like a 13, 14-year-old boy. He's not highly trained. He's not well-equipped. And yet what we're about to see is that David is the solution to the Israelites' greatest problem. David's the solution. Now pause on the story for a second. Fast forward a thousand years. God's going to anoint a greater king to solve a bigger problem. The problem of sin and death, it is the greatest, most fearful problem that has ever faced humanity, and who does God send to solve that problem? He sends Jesus. Who's Jesus? You know, we look at Jesus, and if you know anything about the Bible, you say, well, Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's the Messiah. He, he is God himself. But who did the people who first encountered Jesus meet? What did they see? Well, he's from Bethlehem. Okay, just like David, he's from a nothing little town in the middle of nowhere. Jesus is born to poor, insignificant teenage peasants. He's born in an animal shelter next to llamas and donkeys and cows. His birth announcement was made by angels because he's the son of God, so that's pretty incredible. In Luke chapter 2, it tells us there was a heavenly host, thousands of angels announcing the birth of Jesus. But who did they make the announcement to? It wasn't to Caesar. It wasn't to the high priest or the Pharisees. They made the announcement to shepherds in a field at night. Shepherds at this time in history, we fast forward a thousand years. At this point in Jewish history, they are despised. They are the lowliest possible members of society professionally. Jesus' birth announcement is made to shepherds. And the weirdest part of this whole thing in Luke chapter 2 is that the sign of his divinity, the angel says, this is how you will know when you find the Messiah. You're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a feeding trough, lying in a wooden container that has straw or grain in it that cows eat out of. 
That's who Jesus is. Jesus is a carpenter. He is a lowly laborer. We actually get a little bit of a description of Jesus as well. In Isaiah 53, in a prophecy about the Messiah, it says in verse 2, He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. So Jesus is not what you would expect. If you knew that there was a king that was going to come into the world and he would have the power to conquer death itself and sin, you would not picture Jesus in your mind if you hadn't read the Gospels already. He is an unimpressive Jewish peasant. And so what I want you to see is that the hero in the story of David and Goliath is so unexpected. He's so unimpressive. And the hero of the Gospel message is so unexpected and so unimpressive at face value. So that's the first gospel truth. The second gospel truth that we're going to see as the story unfolds is that the gospel is outrageous. The gospel is absolutely outrageous. One of the things that you're going to notice as you read the book of 1 Samuel, and one of the things that you notice, it's woven throughout all four gospels, is that both David and Jesus, they have this incredible confidence in the power of God. They just have this swagger about them, just like this, this, this unbelievable confidence, and not like a proud, arrogant swagger, but just this amazing faith and confidence in God the Father. And so even though their outward appearance is not impressive, it's not what you would expect for a king, there is something unique about their inner person. And this is exactly what God points out in 1 Samuel chapter 16. So he says to Samuel, he says, uh, Saul's out, Saul's rejected, I want you to go to Bethlehem and I want you to find a man named Jesse. And that's where we're going to choose the next king. Verse 6 of 1 Samuel 16, it says, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, the oldest, the tallest, and said, certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. So David is not what you would expect. He's the youngest, he's the smallest. But God says there is an inner unseen quality about him that he has this incredible confidence, this incredible faith in God. So what's happening? What's happening in the ravine? It says in verse 16, back in 1 Samuel chapter 17, every morning and evening for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand. One day, Jesse had told his son David, take this half bushel of roasted grain along with these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp and take these 10 portions of cheese to the field commander. Check on the well-being of your brothers and bring a confirmation from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David gets these orders from his daddy. He's tending the sheep, and Jesse says, listen, I want you to bring some bread and some cheese and take it to the men who are actually doing the fighting. And David obeys his father's orders. He goes to where the army's camped. He's checking in with his brothers. And then it says this. While he was speaking with them, suddenly the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, came forward from the Philistine battle line and shouted his usual words, which David heard. When all the Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated from him, terrified. So what, what has happened here is that this has been going on for over a month. For 40 days, they are lined up facing off and they haven't fought each other yet. 
And it's like this stare down. And every morning, Goliath comes out and he defies the ranks of Israel. And he issues the same proposition. Let's just settle this one-on-one, man-to-man. You take your best warrior and he can fight me and we'll see what happens. And he's been doing this every single day. And there's only one difference between this day and all of the days before, which is that it says, he approached the battle line, shouted his usual words, which David heard. That's what's different about this particular time. And so what happens next is that David starts to ask some questions. David has heard that King Saul has issued a reward. So if anybody is willing to fight and can beat the Philistine, there's a reward. So David is asking about the reward. The reward. He's trying to get confirmation about the reward. And he has another question that he's asking all throughout the camp. He's asking all the soldiers, anyone who will talk with him. And the second question he's asking is, are you guys actually scared of this clown? Like, do you see this uncircumcised Philistine? Are you guys really scared of him? And so what happens is that word gets back to the king that there's this kid in the camp who's talking some big noise. (laughs) That's what happens. Verse 31. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul. So he had David brought to him. Think about this. 13, 14, 15-year-old boy. He's standing before the king. David said to Saul, this is what he says, Don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. Now, if you've ever read this before, you just kind of, you just read through it. It's just Bible. Yep, I've read this story a hundred times. We've got to stop, and and I want you to understand how ridiculous this is. Like, how absolutely outrageous what David says. So here's David's message. First of all, he's a 15-year-old kid at oldest. He's standing before Aragorn, you know, in all his, he's standing before King Saul. This is his message. These are his words. They're outrageous. The first thing he says, we're going to break it down into two things. Very simple. First thing he says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, King Saul, who's a mighty warrior, who's fought many battles, who's killed Philistines, who leads the armies of Israel. Don't be afraid. Do you see how outrageous that is for him to say that? One, just because of who he's saying it to. So this is Saul. Saul has fought and killed Philistines. Saul has led the armies of Israel in battles where they have dominated the Philistines. And Saul is in a much better position to evaluate the situation they're in. And Saul's evaluation is, we are in trouble. We are outmatched. And this guy, Goliath, who's going to fight him? I'm not going to fight him. That's just certain death. Who's going to fight him? We are totally outmatched. And so for David to come in and suggest to Saul, hey, listen, don't be afraid. It's just nonsense. It's outrageous. But it's not as outrageous as the next thing he says. The next thing he says, he says, don't be afraid, Saul. Why? Because I will fight for you. Do you see how laughable that is? I'll fight for you, Saul. This is the picture that I get in my mind of this. So I want you to imagine... Most of you guys don't have kids, but I have have a seven-year-old son. I want you to imagine I take my seven-year-old son to the grocery store, and we run into Shaquille O'Neal at the grocery store, and I accidentally bump into him with my cart really hard. I'm not looking. I'm looking the other way, bump into him, and he gets really angry, and Shaquille O'Neal wants to fight me. I mean, he's angry. What do you think I'm going to do? I'm going to run away as fast as I can. You know, I'm not fighting. 